Good morning, folks. Good to see you all. You guys can take out your Bibles if you have it, because um, we're going to talk about the Bibles. Uh, my name is Ben. If you don't know who I am, I used to go to this church. Uh, no, I've been, I've been on sabbatical for three months, and I am back. Last Sunday was my first Sunday back. I'm so excited to be back with you guys. Uh, yeah, I'm so excited to be here and share the Word. Uh, we're we're going to continue talking about um, just kind of our journey through the Bible. We've been reading through the Bible as a church. If you've been here, you know we've been doing Love This Book. Right now we're in the Gospels. That's the first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And we're going to continue our journey through those books. And if you want to open your Bible to follow along, we're going to be in John chapter 8 today. But we're going to talk a little bit before we get there. So um, today we are going to really focus on the question, who is this Jesus? Who is this Jesus? Really interesting question. Maybe one that we don't think about all that often because we kind of assume we've figured it out, right? But it's a good thing to reflect on. Who is this Jesus? And as I was sort of researching for talking this morning, what I discovered is that this question is plastered all over the four Gospels, all over the place. People ask this question about Jesus all the time. Here's just a few of the spots that it happens. In Luke 7, 49, it says, Who is this who even forgives sins? Matthew 21, 10 says, The whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? John 5, 12 says, Who is this fellow who told you to pick up your mat and walk? Mark 4, 41, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Luke 9, 9, But Herod said, I beheaded John. Who then is this I hear such things about? John 12, 34. So how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So this question, who is this Jesus, is sort of the theme I discovered this week of all four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are concerned with a lot of different things, but they're primarily concerned with answering this question. Who is this Jesus? Jesus. And as Jesus followers, this is an important question for us to focus on. But as we talk about it on a Sunday morning, it can almost feel like a who cares question, right? Who cares, right? As believers, we can sometimes say like, oh, I've already figured that out. I don't need to talk about that. And most people in the world couldn't care less who Jesus is. Wouldn't, wouldn't even, that question wouldn't even register, right, for them. It wouldn't even make sense to them. Because in our world, we're not really concerned with, uh, with, with figuring out who Jesus is. In fact, um, in our world, which we could describe as a secular humanist society, we have the following, uh, we have the following primary values, which is, first of all, find yourself, discover who you are, right? Find yourself. Know yourself, get to know everything about you and what makes you tick, and so really, really get to know yourself, spend some quality time with you, and then love yourself. Find yourself, know yourself, love yourself. Sociologists agree, secular sociologists and Christian sociologists agree, these are the primary values in our secular humanist society we live in. Look at, look at, the, look at the world around you. Look at uh, social media. Look at the entertainment business. Look at the, the, listen to the conversations you overhear at the gym or in this line at the store. Look at the magazine covers you see in the checkout line. Everything in our world right now is obsessed, is absolutely on one track trying to figure out, trying to find oneself, trying to know oneself, and trying to love oneself. It's, it's sort of the whole ethos of our culture right now. And this, this sort of, uh, these values, to transgress these in our culture, is a source of great shame. Source of great shame. If you're not properly loving yourself, shame on you. 
If you don't really know yourself, well, you'll figure it out one day, little kid. Right? It's a source of great shame for us to transgress these values of finding yourself, knowing yourself, loving yourselves. Are these values wrong? Not necessarily, but we're going to see that they're kind of the wrong way around. For the Jesus follower, if these are the the, uh, values of a secular humanist society, what are the values of a Jesus follower? It's to find God, to know God, and to love God. That's all through the scriptures. Find God. May you find him. May you know him. May you learn to know him and discover what, what he's like, discover his character. May you learn to love him. May you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Even Jesus said this is the primary commandment. So if the, the secular values are find yourself, love yourself, know, uh, find yourself, know yourself, love yourself, and the values of Jesus, the Jesus follower, are find God, know God, love God. It's no wonder that if we ask the question, who is Jesus, we don't even so much get pushback from the world. We get sort of this confused look that makes it seem like we're speaking a foreign language, right? We sound like crazy people. Who cares? I don't care who Jesus is. I don't care who God is. I'm concerned with who I am. I'm trying to find myself right now. But Jesus calls us to sort of change the order of operations, to find God first, to learn to know him, to learn to love him. But then we ask the question, well, does, does myself have any place in God? What does God then do with myself? Well, he gives you himself, which creates in you a new self, which is really your true self. Here's like a lot of the New Testament boiled down for you. What does God want to do with yourself? He wants to give you himself through Jesus on the cross, sacrificing for you and through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. He wants to give you, he wants to create in you a new self through that process. The book of Ezekiel says he wants to give us a new heart. And what we find when we get to that point, so the last piece of the puzzle is, wow, this is who I was meant to be all along. We discover our true self. So notice this. Finding yourself exists in both worldviews. For the secular humanist society, finding yourself is the number one value. It's the starting point. You better go find yourself. Discover who you are. What's your identity? Create that for yourself. And then for the Jesus community, for the Jesus follower, finding your true self is the last piece of the puzzle. And Jesus talks about this all the time. He says things like, to find yourself, you must lose yourself. Right? You must lose your life to save it. Right? And so Jesus, Jesus knows that this is the way through. This is how the, the human heart works. We first must come to find, know, and love God, and then he will give us himself, which creates in us a new self, which is finally and truly our true self. So, so, so it's not that the values of the secular humanist society are bad. It's just that they're starting at the opposite end. And if you start at the opposite end of somebody else, you can never get to the same spot. Like if you're running a race and you're running towards the finish line and somebody else is like, I'm going to run this race too, but I'm going to start at the finish line and run backwards, you will never arrive at the same destination. And so there's bound to be conflict. There's bound to be tension. I experienced this in a really tangible way when I was on my sabbatical. I did this thing called the Camino de Santiago. It's just a short little walk of 500 miles across, across Spain, most, most of Spain and part of France. It's an ancient pilgrimage, began in the 800s AD, and it's a pilgrimage that, that people would take for spiritual reasons, for religious reasons, for centuries and centuries, and they would, they would walk 500 miles, and they would sleep on church floors, and, and they would pray, and they would go to mass, and they would just try to find God, and, and I went and I did this pilgrimage, which you can still do today, 
And I met all kinds of really interesting people. I got to hang out with people from all over the world. They were really cool people. And what I discovered was that I was one of the only people I knew, the only people I found who was doing, I was like one of three people that I talked to, and I talked to a lot of people, who were doing this Camino, doing this, this pilgrimage for the sake of growing closer to God. You know what almost everybody else said? They were trying to find themselves. A few people said they were just trying to get exercise, but almost everybody else said, I was like, there are easier ways to do that. Uh, Almost everyone else said they were trying to find themselves. At at the end of this pilgrimage, it ends in this city called Santiago, and there's this beautiful cathedral, and you go, and every day at noon, this cathedral has a pilgrim mass for all the people who have arrived that day. And so at noon, you gather in this cathedral, and there's like a thousand plus people. There's there's just hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people jammed in there on all three sides of the altar, and they do this beautiful mass, and it's all in Spanish, didn't understand a word, didn't even care. And then they had this like censer, you know, those like like incense things that get swung in some high church... uh, like Catholic church or some high church Anglican kind of stuff, uh, they had a giant one that was like this tall, and it was made of pure silver, and, and it would take uh, eight priests all on a rope pulling to get this thing to swing up into the air, and then it would swing all the way across the length of the cathedral, just letting out incense. It was incredibly powerful to watch, and this whole service was so powerful and really beautiful. And, and afterwards, I saw some of my friends who I'd met on the way, and we'd talked and we'd hung out along the way. Their names were Anna and Tanya, and they're from Germany. And Anna and Tanya uh, came up to me and they're like, oh, that service. Did you, were you there at that, at that mass? Oh, it was so powerful. And I, I kind of remembered that ah, they weren't really religious people. They were some of the, them that were like, no, nah, we're not really into that. So I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, I, I found it powerful too. It was really amazing. And, 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 and Tanya goes, oh, I just cried the whole way through. I just cried and cried and cried and cried and cried. I go, oh, that's so interesting. Why did you, why did you get emotional? Why did you cry? And she said, well, I, I just felt like we were all there, all of us together. We were all celebrating. And I was like, yeah. I felt that too. I felt like I was celebrating. It was a very celebratory mass. It was really cool. And I asked her, what, Tanya, what were you celebrating? And she says, I just feel like we all came together in that cathedral to celebrate the fact that we found ourselves. And I was like, cool, 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 okay. And so the next question I asked is, what are you going to do with that information? You found yourself. What are you going to do with this discovery? And she goes, she was kind of like shocked that I would ask that question, right? Oh, What? What you mean, what's next? Well, why can't we just sit in this moment? Um, she goes, well, I don't know. Uh, I really have no clue what I'm doing. I thought about just going back to the beginning and starting the Camino again. And I was like, cool, 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 you can do that. Uh, and then I said, you know, I felt the celebration too. I got emotional too, and I felt the, the sense of celebration, but I don't know that I was so much celebrating finding myself. And she said, well, what, what were you celebrating? I said, I think, well, you know, when I, when I left, I told my community that people were praying for me. I said, you know, I'm going to do this because I, I pray best when I'm walking. When my feet are moving, that's when my best prayers happen. That's when I, I'm most in tune with the Lord. And so I decided I was going to go pray 500 miles across Spain, and I asked people to pray that God would meet me on the trail, and I really think he did, and I really like, just came to know Jesus in a deeper way just by walking and praying for 500 miles, and she was like, so, she looked at me like I, I was an alien, very confused, and she said this, she said, hmm, that's something I'll have to think about, and I said, I hope you do, I hope your second Camino is about that, and she, she was like, okay, thanks, and we gave each other a hug and then went our separate ways, 
But it just highlighted for me the fact that right now in our culture, we couldn't care less who Jesus is because we want to find ourselves. And notice this, the secular humanist society begins with finding yourself. Following Jesus, you release to him, you surrender to him, you know God, you love God, you, you find him, he gives you himself, he makes in you a new self, and then the last piece of the puzzle is that you really discover this is actually who I was always meant to be. And so what's happening is we are taking ourselves and putting ourselves in the place of God. Instead of finding, knowing, and loving God, we are finding, knowing, and and we're desperately obsessed with finding, knowing, and loving ourselves. And I found this infiltrating Christian culture like so much. So many people, especially in my generation, come to church because they say, I think I want to know myself better which is all well and good, but we have to understand that we can't begin there because that's putting ourselves in God's place. And what I realized when I was at that pilgrim mass at the Camino and I heard what Tanya was saying, I looked around and I went, look at this, hundreds of people in the house of God who are playing God. Hundreds of people in the house of God worshiping at the altar of I found myself. People in the house of God playing God, and I think that is so indicative of our culture right now. Our primary aim is to find ourselves when we were created to find God. Have you ever heard this quote? It's a very famous quote. It says that our souls are restless. Our souls are made for God and are restless until we find our rest in him. I think our culture is really struggling with that right now. And so what happens is that we, we sort of spin out of control, we sort of hit a dead end, because here's the deal, if you are obsessed with knowing yourself and putting yourself in the place of God in your life, beginning and ending with yourself rather than with God, very quickly you hit a wall. Very quickly things start to unravel. Why? Because the identities that we start to trust in, they start to crumble. And somebody else sort of challenges it. Or something, you know, we, we have a job that's our identity. I, I am that, I am teacher, I am whatever it is. And that, that suddenly we get laid off. Or, or we have a relationship. This person is, they complete me. They are my identity. And soon that relationship crumbles and it ends. Or our parents, right? We, oh man, I know there are lots of high schoolers and students and, and kids in here today. Our parents, right? Oh man, they are my identity. My, my parents are my identity. And then something happens or even we grow up and we move away or something happens where we have an identity crisis. And if we are trying to found our life on finding ourselves, knowing ourselves and loving ourselves, pretty soon it crumbles And we enter a world of chaos and darkness because we have tried to play God. And when we let ourselves down, we are in a world where we have no concept of God. It becomes a very difficult place to live. Uh, There's a guy, there's a philosopher from uh, the 19th century in Germany named Friedrich Nietzsche. And Nietzsche was really famous for talking about what happens when we take God out of society. And he was actually pro-taking God out of society. He was like, we should all just finally admit that God does not exist and we live in a world of chaos and darkness. That's what he wanted people to do. And he says this, he creates a parable where this guy lights a lantern in the early daylight hours of the morning. In the daylight, he lights a lantern, he goes to the marketplace, and he starts shouting at people. And this is what he says to them. He says, where is God gone? I mean to tell you, we have killed him. You and I, we are all his murderers. But how have we done it? 
How were we able to drink up the sea? Who gave us the sponge to wipe away the whole horizon? What did we do when we loosened this earth from its sun? Whither does it now move? Whither do we move away from all suns? Do we not dash on unceasingly, backwards, sideways, forwards? In all directions, is there still an above and below? Do we not stray as through infinite nothingness? Does not empty space breathe upon us? Has not it become colder? Does not night come on continually darker and darker? Shall we not have to light lanterns in the morning? Do we not hear the noise of the gravediggers who are burying God? Do we not smell the divine putrefaction for even God's putrefy? God is dead, God remains dead, and we have killed him. How shall we console ourselves? The most murderous of all murderers. The holiest and mightiest that the world has hitherto possessed has bled to death under our knife. Who will wipe away the blood from us? With what water could we cleanse ourselves? What lustrums, what sacred games shall we have to devise? Is not the magnitude of this death too great for us? Listen to this. Shall we not ourselves have to become gods merely to seem worthy of it? What Nietzsche understood is that the universe cannot exist without some transcendent being, and what we have tended to do as a culture is to remove God from that place and put ourselves in it. And how does Nietzsche describe that? He calls it darkness. Does not night come on darker and darker? He says, shall we not have to light lanterns in the morning? I love that image, lighting lanterns in the morning. What does that mean? I think it means that we are in a world full of infinite light. We're in a world where there is God, where God, the transcendent being, exists, has created all, and is available for relationship with us. And because we have chosen to ignore that and to claim it does not exist, we have to light lanterns in the morning to comfort ourselves. What does that mean for our culture today? Well, I think it means that we have immense questions of identity, the purpose of our lives. We see the world crumbling around us. We see darkness overwhelming people all around us. And how do we cope with it? Well, if there's no God to turn to, if there's no God who's powerful to pray to, where do we turn? Probably our favorite Netflix show, right? And if there's no God in the darkness, if there's no light in the darkness, if there's no transcendent being that we can go to and pray to and ask to help us and ask for a savior, where do we turn? Probably posting on social media about what we had for breakfast or whatever it is. We, t- we light lanterns in the morning to comfort ourselves from the fact that we feel alone in a universe of darkness because we have taken God from his throne and put ourselves in his place. And whenever we do that, we are bound to let ourselves down. I discover that we are, in fact, not God. So that's where we begin in John chapter 8. Because in this world where people are trying to know themselves, find themselves, know themselves, love themselves, it creates an incredible void, an incredible emptiness sort of at the center of human existence. And even though people aren't walking around on the street, right? You don't go downtown Portland and people are walking around going, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Will somebody tell me who is Jesus? What we find is that if what, we've, if what we've discovered by putting ourselves in God's place, if the thing we've discovered is emptiness, then this question of who is this Jesus, who is God, this is actually the most relevant question we could possibly ask for our lives and for our culture. And the same thing is true when Jesus shows up on the scene. In the first century when Jesus, Jesus shows up, the Roman pantheon of gods have become a plaything have become sort of this sort of afterthought that we say, yeah, 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 and the gods, blah, 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 blah. 
And if we sort of, uh, and in that culture as well, even the, the people of God, the, the Hebrew people who trusted in God and who were following God, for them even, God had become a political tool and a plaything. Because what was really happening was they themselves were playing God and they just sort of invoked the name of God to give themselves authority. It is into this culture where people are trying to play God that Jesus shows up on the scene. And he says this in chapter 8 of John, verse 12. He says, when Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have light. People then and people now, I think, know that the world is full of darkness. I think we know that. I I hear my secular friends talk about it all the time, how dark things are. Be a light in the darkness because it's a dark world we're living in. And Jesus shows up on the scene and immediately sets himself up as the answer. He says, you live in a dark world, I am the light. You can't see where you're going, whoever whoever, uh, wants to see me will never walk in darkness. He sets himself up as the answer to our darkness that we're living in. And the people around him start to sort of chafe against this a little bit. Skip down with me to verse 21 of chapter 8. It says this, once more Jesus said to them, I am going away. And you will look for me, and you will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. This made the Jews ask, will he kill himself? Is that why he says, where I go, you cannot come? So Jesus teaches us something really important about his identity and about identity in general. He says, who I am and why I'm here is connected, absolutely like inextricably connected to where I'm going, to my trajectory. And even our secular world agrees with this about identity. Part of your identity is about where you're going and what you're pursuing, what you desire, what you're seeking, right? That is a part of who you are. And Jesus says, for the Jesus follower, right, yes, your identity is inextricably linked to where you're going. Are you going your own way or are you going towards God's eternal future for you with him? Where are you going? And so he starts to say, you want to know who I am? Think about where I'm going. And they just, it goes right over their heads. They're like, what? What's he saying? Is he going to kill himself? Is that why he's saying this? We don't really understand. So Jesus tries to explain further in verse 23. But he continued, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins. If you do not believe that, if you do not believe that I am he, you will indeed die in your sins. So Jesus is saying, okay, 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 you're not really catching on to the where I'm going and where you're going thing. Let's talk about where I come from and where you come from. And so he says, where I come from, right, is from above. Where you come from is from, ab- from below. So Jesus says, listen, you think, that you, come, you think you know where you come from, all this stuff, he said, but you really have to understand that where I come from is a place of greater understanding than where you come from. Where we come from is also a deep part of our identity, right? Whatever nationality, whatever family life, whatever culture you come from. I remember one time I was working at Trout Creek Bible Camp years ago, and I was on leadership staff there. So when counselors couldn't really deal with an issue, they would, call, they would, like, it would get sort of punted up to me. And I remember one day uh, there was this kid in the gym at, at Trout Creek who just started going ballistic. He started taking like heavy pool balls and chucking them at people. He started breaking pool cues over people, and he started just throwing chairs. He was just going ballistic. So they got everyone out of the gym, and this kid's still going crazy in there by himself, and they just, they asked me, they were like, Ben, my camp name was Fidget, so they were like, Fidget, will you come and talk to this kid? And I was like, sure, sure, sure. I know, surprising, right? Fidget is my camp name. Uh, so I was like, sure, sure, sure. So I, I was like, I'll try to talk to him. So I go in there, and he just starts screaming at me, you don't know where I come from! You don't know where I come from! 
For him, his whole identity was tied to some history he had, some place, something in his past. And the same is true for us. The way we view where we come from is inextricably linked to our identity. So Jesus says, okay, 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 you think you, you, think you understand where you come from. What I'm here to tell you is that I understand even more. Because I come from above and you come from below. And so you must believe then that I am he. And they're like, you are he? You are who? In fact, look at the next verse, verse 25. Who are you? They asked. They just straight up, wait, 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 wait. Who are you again? Like, who are you saying you are, Jesus? Who are you? Verse 25, he answers, just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say in judgment of you. Like, I could get really mad. I could judge you right now. But he who sent me is trustworthy. What I have heard from him, I tell the world. So Jesus is saying, you want to know who I am? Look at the person who sent me. He, they're kind of looking at him like, okay, who sent you? Okay, okay. You want to know who I am? Think about who sent me. And then he goes on in verse 27. They did not understand that he was telling them about his father. And so Jesus went on. He said, when you have lifted up, he just gets really clear. When you have lifted up the son of man, then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing on my own, but speak just what the father has taught me. The one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do what pleases him. Even as he spoke, many believed in him. So Jesus is saying, okay, okay, you guys aren't understanding. You don't, you, you don't understand where I'm going. Don't understand where I came from. Don't understand whose authority I'm here with. You don't understand any of that. So let me be really clear to you. I am speaking to you, not my own words. I'm speaking to you the words of my Father, God. Jesus does two things here. He endows his words with authority. He says, no, 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 you're not understanding what I'm saying. What I have to tell you is not an opinion. It's not just another way of looking at things. What I have to tell you is truth. And I don't speak my words, I speak the words of my Father God. So he does that. The second thing he does is he puts himself into a special relationship with God. He says, he is Father. I am his Son. I speak on his behalf. Now here's the thing. Everything Jesus has said about his identity so far is sort of comprehensible to us, Right? We're like, yeah, 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 identity has to do with where you're going, where you come from, whose name you speak, and all this kind of stuff, right? But as soon as Jesus puts his name or puts himself in a special relationship to God, he sort of goes off the track a little bit. And what he's saying is that your identity is created by all these things, but I want you to know that I have a unique identity. I have a special identity identity that no one else shares. I have a unique relationship to the Father. So at this point, we can sort of, up to this point, we can sort of listen to Jesus and be like, yeah, okay, interesting. You say this, okay, interesting. You say you're from above, okay, interesting, interesting, interesting. As soon as he calls himself God's son and saying that he's speaking with God's authority, we have two choices. He's either telling the truth and we go, okay, great, I'm listening. Or else, he's incredibly arrogant and he's a lunatic. At this point, he goes off the track. He doesn't give us the chance to just sit there and be like, that's interesting what you think about your whole identity. He demands a response from us in regards to his identity. He demands it. He doesn't give us an in-between ground, and oh, that's interesting sort of place. Either he's absolutely right, and we must listen to what he says because he's speaking for God, or else he's incredibly arrogant and a total lunatic. He just sort of takes the heart of the issue and lays it bare. And when people catch on to what he's saying, it says here in verse 30, some people believed. Some people believed. They responded and they said, yes, I believe that you have a special relationship to God and I am here to listen. Who are these people? Who are the people who believed in Jesus? 
Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever read through the Bible and been like, let's take note of the different kinds of people who respond to Jesus? Who are the people who respond with faith? Who are the people who respond with anger? What kind of people are they? What kind of person am I? We get a picture of who these people are in the next verse, verse 31. To the Jews who had believed in him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Wow, a bunch of stuff happens here. He says, if you receive, if you hold on, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. So what marks a disciple of Jesus then? What marks a Jesus follower? It's somebody who receives the teaching of Jesus. It's somebody who says, I believe that you are from above, I am from below, that you understand more than I do. It sort of echoes Isaiah 55. In Isaiah 55, the voice of God says, as the heavens are high above the earth, so are my thoughts higher than your thoughts and my ways than your ways. The person who trusts Jesus, who is one of his disciples, the Jesus follower, is the person who says, I believe you understand more than I do. It's the person who says, I'm willing to base my life not on my convictions, but on your convictions. I'm willing to listen not to what I say is right and wrong, but what, to, what you say is right and wrong. In a word, the people who follow Jesus are humble people. The people who follow Jesus are humble people. And he says, when you receive that, from, when you trust me and you receive my word, you hold on to my teaching, when you do that, I will give you truth. And you won't discover it from yourself, from going on a big, a long journey where you just really kind of get to know yourself and learn to, you, that. You won't discover that tr- Jesus will give you the truth. And then he says, this truth, it will set you free. He introduces a new concept, freedom. Man, we are all about freedom these days, aren't we? I'm free to make my choice to de- choices to decide who I am and you can't tell me any different. By freedom, we usually mean hyper-individualism, by the way. We don't actually mean freedom. What Jesus is saying is that way of life is slavery. The way of life where it's like, oh, I can just, I'm going to live in my own little world, my one-track mind, and just be obsessed with who I am and who I say I am and creating my identity, creating my own truth. That actually is slavery. He says, you want to be free? Come get the truth from me. This truth will set you free. It will set you free. What, is that, what would that be like to be free in Christ? And the people respond, verse 33, they answered him, hang on, hang on, hey, hey, hey. We are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves to anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? Jesus is like, I'm going to give you truth, this truth is going to set you free. And they go, well, but we're not slaves. But we're just, we're just following our identity. No, 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 we're, we're just being ourselves. We're children, of Abra- We're children of Abraham. How dare you say that I'm not free? And Jesus, sa- Jesus responds brilliantly in the next verse, verse 34. He says, very truly I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Have you ever thought about it that way? Anyone who sins is just a slave to sin. Now a slave has no more per- permanent place in the family, than a, uh, but a son belongs to it forever. So, hear this, if the son, Jesus has already set himself up as the son of God, right? So if the son sets you free... You will be free indeed, as in freedom that is truly free. You will be free indeed. I know that you are Abraham's descendants. Biologically, I get that. Yet, you are looking for a way to kill me because you have no room for my word. Wow. In your, in your world, in your identity structure, in the kingdom you've built that maybe revolves around you, do you have room for the word of Jesus? Is there room in your life to hear the word of Jesus? even when it contradicts your own word about yourself. 
He says, you have no room for my word. Verse 38, I am telling you what I have seen in the Father's presence, and you are doing what you have heard from your father. So Jesus is actually challenging their identity. He's saying, you say you're Abraham's children, you're not acting like it, because you have no room for my word, which is really God's word. So you're actually children of a different father, and you're acting just like him. He doesn't reveal who that other father is, but he says you're actually not behaving as Abraham's children. What Jesus does, and I love this, he, he actually gives us a, true, a, a sense of our true condition. First thing Jesus does in your life, by the way, is to reveal to you what your true condition is. And until you've really seen your true condition, until you've discovered that you're actually a slave to sin, and you're actually trying to play God, and it's, it's just a dead-end life, until you've discovered that, the other claims of Jesus will make no sense to you. Jesus' first job, the thing he does is to reveal your true condition. So then a battle of identities happens. Because Jesus says, I am from Father God. You say you're from Father Abraham. You're really not. And they start fighting about identity. Here's what happens. Verse 39. Abraham is our father, they answered. They're like, hang on, don't you dare say he's not. If you were Abraham's children, said Jesus, then you would do what Abraham did. As it is, you are looking for a way to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham did no such things. You are doing the works of your own father. And they get really mad and they say, we are not illegitimate children, they protested. The only father we have is God himself. They get really mad that Jesus could be challenging their identity and this, this, this sort of clash of identities is born. This is really, really interesting. This reminds me of, of actually something that happens a lot in our culture today that I've experienced a number of times, which is that we are obsessed with our own identities. We label ourselves in a million different ways. We want to find ourselves, know ourselves, love ourselves, and we expect everybody else's identity to be subservient to ours. We, we don't really want to get to know people. We want people to become people who affirm our identity. I was having a conversation this week with a friend of mine who used to be a believer in Christ, used to serve in ministry with me. We had a friendship and sort of like a mentorship uh, relationship. And um, then this person decided that they were going to do two things. They were going to live their own way and make, make choices with their life that uh, he knew that God did not approve of and that I did not approve of and that like, the Bible says is wrong. And that also uh, that, that meant he needed to leave the church and leave faith and leave Jesus. And so since that time that he made that transition in his life, um, we've had many conversations and we had another one earlier this week. We, we met up at Edgefield McMinimins out in Troutdale, if you know where that is. And we, uh, we just sat down and we had a conversation that echoed a lot of our conversations we've had. We just keep, seem to have the same conversation over and over. And he's, he said a couple of things to me. He said, first of all, he says, I don't really know what you think of me. And I said, well, first of all, I don't really that much. Um, but when I do, it's always with fondness. And it's always like, man, I want to hang out. I want to just hang out and hear how you're doing and I hope things are going well for you. I pray for you often. He's like, no, no, no. What I really mean is, like, uh, do you approve of me? Or do you, sorry, he said, do you support me? Do you support me? And I said, of course I support you. I want, I want God's will in your life. I trust that God is on a journey with you. You're on a journey with God. And I just want to, I really just want to see you live the, the best version of your life possible. And like, man, I just, I, I want the best for you 100%, absolutely. And I don't pretend to always know what that is. Like, I support you. He said, no, 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 listen. He said, we used to share a lot of convictions about how life is supposed to be lived. And he said, I don't have those convictions anymore, and what I really need to know is, do you still believe those things? And I was like, okay, 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 interesting. Now we're at the, the root of the issue. And I shared with him, I was like, listen, what I believe and what I've learned from Christ and from the Bible has set me free. 
And it's actually the fundamental, it's the core rock bottom fact of who I am. That is my identity, 100%. And what you're asking me to do right now is to change my identity or release my identity so that I can, my identity can serve your identity. And the issue with that is, by, by asking me to do that, that's actually what you're doing. <laughs> you're asking me to give up my identity. You're, you're asking me to give up my identity to serve your identity, which is what you're accusing me of doing in the first place. And, and, and I'm like, if you need me to give up my fundamental identity of being a Christ follower in order to be friends, then I'm sorry, I can't do that. But know that even though I'm not asking you to give up your identity, I still want to be your friend. And what happens is I, I'm sort of free, right? I'm sort of free. Did you know this? This is so interesting. Did you know that one of, and this might kind of shock you for a second, did you know one of Jesus' goals for your life is to make you more open-minded? What? No, surely not. We can't be open. Yes, one of Jesus' goals for your life is to make you more open-minded. When you are obsessed with one identity and you're just, this is who I am and it's my truth and I have to just blast through and if the world were a better place then I would be happier but it's really just about my core identity. Nothing could be wrong with what I believe and making my truth and my kingdom. When we can't hear anything outside of that without being livid and without just cutting people out of our lives right and left. And I, I, the, the way my friends talk about it is, I'm trying not to hang out with unhealthy people. Really? Okay. Let me know how that goes in this world. And so we start cutting people out because we just, we can't handle anything that contradicts us. But when I have received the truth from Jesus and the truth has set me free, then I'm free to hear people who believe something totally different than me and say, I'm not going to fight you. I'm going to let God do that. I don't need to fight you. You can't assail my identity because it's been given to me by the power of the universe. And so I'm going to let God fight you instead. That's good enough for me. And I'm free suddenly to be open-minded, to listen to people and not react in anger and fear and frustration and defensiveness. One of Jesus' goals for you is to make you more open-minded. Right now we live in a very closed-minded culture. And so what Jesus is battling here is the closed-mindedness of these Jewish people, of these Pharisees. And so Jesus kind of just takes them to task. He kind of goes to the, for the fundamental like, basis of the problem. He starts to break apart their identity. He says this in verse 42. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I have come here from God. I have not come on my own. God sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? Because there's something in the way. That's why. Because you are unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil. He has out with it. He says, your father is the devil. And you want to carry out your father's desires. What are your father's desires? Well, he is a murderer from the beginning. He not holding to the truth, and there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Jesus says, you want to know why you can't hear what I have to say? You want to know why you have no room for my word in your life? It's because you have built your life and your identity on a foundation of lies. And when you do that, it's like trying to build the Taj Mahal on cardboard boxes. It's going to collapse. And Jesus breaks it. He just sort of kicks down the door of their identity. And he comes inside and he says, look at this place. Look at how filthy. You want to live like this? Are you really satisfied with this? And he breaks down their identity, and in that moment, he's offering them a way out. Listen to this, verse 45. Yet because I tell you the truth, you do not believe in me. Can any of you prove me guilty of sin? I am telling you the truth. Why don't you believe me? Whoever belongs to God, hears what God says. The reason you do not hear God is you do not belong to God. Jesus is saying, listen, 
Your identity is in shambles. Your kingdom that you've built with yourself at the center, it's falling apart. I'm here with a word from God because I want to set you free. I want to give you a way out. Hear this. If your identity, the things you've built your life on, the things you've trusted in, the things you've put your hope on, if that is crumbling around you and just crashing down around your ears, I want you to know Jesus has never been so close to you. Jesus is offering you a way out right now. And maybe, maybe a relationship that you really put everything into is just falling apart. I don't know, maybe, maybe a career that's been just, just 100% your thing for, for years. Maybe you got laid off. Maybe you're having a change of heart career-wise. Whatever identity you have, if you, are, if you are just like living and trying to build up your own kingdom and it's just falling apart and the cracks are starting to show and things are starting to fall apart, I want you to know Jesus has never been so close. He wants to set you free. And when he sets you free, you are free indeed. Not that anxious, defensive freedom that says, I can do whatever I want. But the true freedom that says, I have found the one for whom my soul longs. And I have found my identity in him, and that identity cannot be shaken, and now I am free. I'm free to do what? I'm free to work, free to love, free to raise a family, free to listen to the word of God and the word of other people, free to live in the world but be not of the world. I'm free. I'm free. I'm no longer living an anxious and defensive life. And Jesus offers you that way at the moment when your identity and your self-made kingdom is collapsing around your ears. And how did the Jews respond in verse 48? The Jews answered him, aren't we right in saying that you're a Samaritan and you're demon-possessed? Oh, Jesus, you're just demon-possessed. You're just demonized. Which is their way of saying you're straight-up evil. This has happened to me before. I haven't, I haven't had this like, <laughs> aggressive of conversations with people yet, yet, thankfully. But uh, I have had many conversations with people where I say, like, this is what I believe, and this is who I believe I am and who God made us to be, and here's what I believe Jesus offers, blah, blah, blah. And I've had people respond word for word by saying, you are evil. Because in a world that their primary value, their primary moral, ethical value is to find yourself, know yourself, love yourself, then anyone who says anything other than what your truth is and your idea is and your identity is, is straight up evil. Because they are transgressing against what you have decided for your moral law, which is find yourself, know yourself, love yourself. And anyone who looks in you and says, you're not God, man, they're evil. So they respond to him, aren't you demon-possessed? And they says this in verse 49, I am not possessed by a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. I am seeking the glory. I'm not seeking glory for myself, but there is one who seeks it, and he is judge. Very truly, I tell you, whoever obeys my word will never see death. What Jesus is trying to say is, listen, I'm not on a power trip here. I'm trying to rescue you. I'm trying to set you free from this darkness and death that you see all. I'm trying to save you. It's not just about me wanting you to worship me. I don't need that to feel good about myself. I want you to do what you were made to do, which is to believe in me, to trust me, and receive your identity from me. Rather than finding, knowing, and loving yourself, I want you to find, know, and love God. Let him build a new self in you. And we can skip now down to uh, verse uh, 54. So Jesus says this, he continues, so the Jews have just asked him in the previous verse, the very previous sentence, the Jews have asked him, who do you think you are? Which, by the way, they're finally asking the right question. 
They're asking it tongue-in-cheek, who do you think you are? But Jesus is like, I hear your words, and I will take them at face value. He says, well, let me tell you who I am. Verse 54, Jesus replied, if I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My Father, whom you claim as your God, is the one who glorifies me. Though you do not know him, I know him. Even if I, uh, if I said I did not, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I obey his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He did see it, and he was glad. Verse 57, you're not yet 50 years old, they said to him. How is that you have seen Abraham. So what Jesus is saying is, you know that identity that you've just based your whole world on? This whole like, you know, you are special because you're Abraham's children? I'm here to tell you that I transcend that identity. I'm here to tell you that, that, like, that, that even Abraham longed to see me. That even Abraham would be here listening to, I'm here to tell you that all the things you've based your life on are leading you in the wrong direction and I want you to listen to what I, he just makes one last ditch effort and they're like, no, come on, come on, you can't really be above our identity. You can't really claim to be, you know, more true than we are. You can't really claim truth that is absolutely true, no matter people's perspectives or opinions. You can't really claim that, Jesus. How could you? Because Abraham is way back when, and you're here now. And so Jesus finally, finally just goes right to the rock bottom, the root of everything that's going on. He's like, you want to know who I am? You want to you really know who I am? The thing you're not ready to hear? You want to know that? It's this. Verse 58, very truly I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. Jesus needs a class in grammar, right? Shouldn't it be I was? Before Abraham was born, I am. What Jesus is saying, he's actually quoting Exodus when Moses meets God in the burning bush and says, who are you? And God's response is, I am that I am. As in, I am God, there is none other like me. I am the rock bottom fact of the universe. I'm the foundational truth at the bottom of everything else. I am God. There is none other like me. I am that I am. And so God became known as the I am. And Jesus is saying, listen, I am. I am. Before Abraham was, before all your identities started spinning out of control, before you were trying to build this kingdom on your own identity and your own specialness, before you were trying all of that, I am. And there are two responses we can have to that. When Jesus shows up in our lives and says, you think you're God, you are not God, I am. We have two responses possible to us. One is to kneel before him and say, yes, you are. Yes, you are. You get to decide who I am, what I'm about, what I believe, what is true. You get to decide what is right, what is wrong. You get to decide what I do when I wake up in the morning and what I do throughout my day. You get to decide what words I say to the person I meet. You get to decide what, what, what thoughts I think about that person. You get, to decide every, you get to decide every trajectory of my life. You get to decide everything. You are God. Or when Jesus shows up in your life and says, you think you're God, you are not God, I am, you can have the response of the people around him. Verse 59, at this they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple. They said, how dare you? How dare you challenge our identity? This is our truth. This is who I am. You are evil, and we must get rid of you. Those are our two options, and the first one, kneeling before him and saying, yes, you are God, and I trust you with everything, that is a perfect picture of what freedom looks like. The other one and saying, 
no, no, we can't believe that. Let's put up the defenses. Let's barricade the walls. Let's, let's, let's lock ourselves in. That is slavery. It's going into lockdown. It's locking yourself in a box. And Jesus wants to come and set you free. He wants to break it apart. He wants to show you who you really are, give you truth that is really true, and freedom that is really free. So Jesus, I want you to know wherever you're at, if your identity is crumbling, if you're just really obsessing and trying to figure out who you are, if, if your world, you're seeing cracks in it because it's a kingdom built around you at the center, if any of that is you this morning, I want you to know Jesus is here. And he's saying to you, you think you're God. You're not. I am. And as Jesus followers, our response is to kneel before him and say, yes, you are. And it changes everything. It changes everything. And suddenly we can walk through the world in freedom, in openness, with a posture of peace and not a posture of anger and defensiveness. And we can walk through the world in the confidence of him who created us, telling us who we really are in him and giving us a true identity that cannot be shaken. So who is Jesus? Who is this Jesus? He's either one to be stoned and kicked out of your life, or he is God. And the only response is to kneel. So this morning I ask you, we're in a moment we're going to open the tables and come forward for communion. Uh, so communion is something we do to remember what Jesus did for us on the cross, the blood poured out, the body broken. And I want you this morning, before you come, I want you to just honestly ask yourself, is Jesus God in my life? Is Jesus God in my life, or am I? And if your answer is, you know what, uh, he's not. He's not God in my life. I'm really offended by a lot of the things he says. I'm really, I really have a hard time releasing control. Then, uh, then, then maybe don't take communion this morning if you haven't trusted Jesus like that. But if this morning when you ask that question, there is some, something deep down in your soul that says, yes, Jesus, you are God in my life. I trust you with everything. If there is something inside of you that says that, when you ask that question, I want to invite you to come to the, ta the tables and receive God because he wants to give you himself to create in you a new self, which is really your true self. Let me pray. The tables will be open after I pray. Gluten-free is at that back corner over here. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the fact that you break into our lives, you tear apart our identities, and you say that we are not God, but that you are God. I ask that we would learn to base our lives on nothing else. I ask that you would break through all the veneer and all the, the, the puppetry and all the, the, the smoke and mirrors that, that is this world of I can create my own truth, I can create my own identity, I'm just going to find myself, know myself, love myself. And I ask that you break through all of that and you remind us that you really are God and I ask that our response through the power of your Holy Spirit would be to kneel and say, yes, you are. And that that truth, that response would set us free. Lord, as we come to the tables, we just invite you to take control. We, we, uh, we remove ourselves from the throne. We want you to come and fill it. Come and live in the throne of our hearts, Jesus. We love you so much. Come, Holy Spirit, draw us towards you. In the powerful, holy name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.